You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, welcome back to the show. If my voice sounds weird, it's because I'm persevering a cold. Tried to postpone recording this until it passed, but to no avail. I am in the throes. Anyways, this is episode three of five of our Temples of Stoke series presented by the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, whose Temple of Stoke exhibit is on display through October 29th. So for the next two months, I suppose. The exhibit features 22 iconic California surf shops, their stories and memorabilia from over the decades, some as many as six decades, like today's subject, Harbor Surfboards in Seal Beach, California, a mere 3.7 miles from where I sit recording this and from where I grew up. The goal of this series, in addition to just telling rich individual stories, was to represent a variety of business practices and different sizes of business. Episode one with TK at the Frog House was a story about kind of a colorful surf shop without a local surfboard brand attached to it, mainly just focused on soft goods and operating as a fun community clubhouse for surfers. Episode two was with Bing Surfboards, a 60-year-old surfboard manufacturer that has transitioned ownership while still honoring the original legacy. Episode three, today's episode, is with Robert Housen of Harbor Surfboards, and Robert covers some new ground here. The brand identity is still centered around quality surfboard manufacturing, and those are still shaped on-site behind the retail store, but Robert is responsible for successfully transitioning a surfboard manufacturing facility into a destination retail store that people visit just to get clothes with their iconic Harbor Triangle logo. Seal Beach itself was founded in the mid-1860s and was originally known as Anaheim Landing. It sits on the westernmost edge of Orange County, just across a bridge from Long Beach and Los Angeles County. The population is just under 25,000, and even though the stretch of sand is only about a mile long, it sees tremendous diversity in waves throughout the course of the year if the sandbars and swells align. Rich Harbor tells me a story about getting smashed in the shore break on a rental blow-up mat back in his childhood. That's episode number 17 of Surf Splendor. I've uh, put that in your show notes. That was recorded way back in November 2013, I believe. So make sure to check that out. Anyway, Rich Harbor began shaping boards in 1959, and he opened the retail store, Harbor Surfboards, at 329 Main Street, just off the corner of Pacific Coast Highway in 1962, the same location where the store stands today, making it nearly synonymous with Seal Beach and truly a piece of surfing history. Robert Housen, the subject of today's interview, is the owner of the retail portion of the business, and his relationship with Harbor began in 1980. I'll let him explain it in full detail. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor. 
I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Robert Housen of Harbor Surfboards. I'll be back at the end of the show to sign us off. Thanks. I'll start with just, you run a really tight ship. Like, <laughs> like I've been into a bunch of different surf shops doing this series, yes. and they come in all shapes and sizes. Yes. This runs like an actual business. Yes, it has to. Does it? it absolutely has to. Our survival depends on it. Yeah. Yeah. Other people survive running things really loosely and chaotically. Uh, I think that is, uh, what would I say? That's that's not the, the norm these days. Let's okay. just say we have to step up our game in hopes of making it. Where does that come from? Is that part of your DNA or is that... Yeah, it's, it's it's not. I would I would say that it's uh, part of my DNA primarily. Um, to take nothing away from Rich, Rich was uh, and always will be an incredible craftsman. Uh, so his his gift is his ability to work with his hands, and uh, my gift, if it if it is one, I would say, is my ability to hopefully keep this thing flying. How long have you been here? I have been here on an official capacity for twenty six years. Uh, I've been associated with the company for over thirty. What did that mean prior to the official capacity? Oh, that's just what a kook. It? I was just here having fun, <laughs> um, riding the boards and, and being a part of all the shenanigans and just enjoying being a young surfer. Okay. Yeah. So early 90s, basically? Uh, 80s. Late 80s? Yeah. Yeah. So I came here, I think, in like, gosh, the first association I have with Harbor Surfboards, probably 1979, 1980. Holy cow. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. It was a year or two before I was born. Yeah. I, I know. And I talk to most <laughs> I people. Hate to I, I hate to say it, too, because, I mean, that gives you an idea of how old I am. But anyway. You don't look it. Yeah, we thanks. look like we're within a, I don't know, eight, ten-year range yeah, from one yeah. another. Just keep surfing. So, okay. That's all I can tell you. Found you. Yeah. Um, let's backtrack. We'll sure. get into your origin story and involvement, but let's backtrack. Give me the Harbor Surfboards origin story. When was it founded? Mm. The Harbor Surfboards uh, story is kind of fun. Um our official date is 1959. We're celebrating our 60th anniversary this year. Amazing. And uh, Rich essentially uh, got a surfboard stolen, and uh, he wanted to build one, and his parents allowed him to build one. And before you know it, a couple of kids said, hey, Rich, that board looks like it works pretty good. Can you build me one? So it was very, very organic and very innocent and very beautiful and very Mayberry how it all got going here in little old Seal Beach. And... Uh, the mess that Rich would make in his mom's garage, mom and dad's garage, was kind of atrocious. So they kicked him out and essentially said, hey, you can try a different spot in town and not make a mess in ours. So he bumbled around for a couple places, and finally they arrived at uh, this place here at 329 Main Street. And that was 1962 when the doors opened here. And so it's uh, we haven't looked back since. Same location the entire time? Same location. We technically are uh, have the oldest uh, shaping location in its original location. So, in California, I think it's uh, over the United States. That's wild. Yeah, a lot of people have built, you know, but they've moved their their shape rooms and stuff. Ours has essentially stayed in three two nine Main. How um, has this space changed since then? Uh, quite a bit. Uh, the vast majority of it in the early days was manufacturing. So the showroom that you walked into was probably a. Th- a third the size okay and so we had glassing racks we had uh, multiple shapers I mean it really took off and became a uh, an industry a board building industry here in Seal Beach in addition to there was uh, auto repair shops there was 
boat repair facilities and manufacturing and of course as the town had changed and as uh, surfing uh, the industry itself had changed to go to more of a soft goods side we had changed mm. so we just kind of evolved do you have any idea when um rich start, first started bringing in soft goods well when i first came upon it in the uh 80s just say we were right at the cusp of that whole revolution of the quicksilver the billabong the instinct the Malian Sons, the, all those early uh, 80s style brands, if you will, late 70s, early 80s. But we really didn't have, or should I say Harbor Surfboards, really didn't have a uh, background in soft goods and the potential of what soft goods had meant. So consequently, um, we just kept bumbling along in terms of building boards, selling boards, and hoping that that was enough. Yeah. And that's how a lot of the older guys were back in the day, whether it be Greg Knoll or, you know, con surfboards or, or you know, what have you. Um, so real professionalism in uh, retailing probably didn't come along until those very early 80s, starting with Aaron Pye at Huntington Surf and Support and a few of the other guys that just said, hey, look, we're going to look at this thing like a business and not like, wow, we're lucky to have this board building things, sleeping in the back, having a beer, hanging out, you know, those those days are kind of, they were done. They are, but they're almost two different things. Mm -hmm. Like the example you just gave mm -hmm. of HSS, mm -hmm. it is um, a retailer. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it is focused on retail. 100%. As opposed to kind of a true classic surf shop. Correct. Making surfboards is mm -hmm. one skill set. Being able to sell your surfboards is an entire, or run that business is mm -hmm. an entirely different thing, and then retail mm -hmm. is a different thing entirely. Mm -hmm. So it takes a really unique kind of, you know, equation to be able to pull those things off. Yeah, I, I thought it was pretty unique myself. It, yeah. was, it, was, it was. We're we're very fortunate that we were able to do it, and a lot of people and a lot of things had to fall into place to allow us to do what we did. Well, honestly, kudos to Rich for letting go of the reins yeah and with certain things it's hard oh very hard to give your baby and, and you know obviously i'm very grateful to the fact that he did and he chose me to uh you know continue the legacy if you will of the brand name and also develop the retail side so that was a big deal so what was your background prior well, to stumbling on hard <laughs> surfboards where'd you grow up and that's kind of interesting uh, i grew up in northern california so i surfed a lot of cold water Whereabouts? Uh, um, I grew up in the Bay Area, a place called Foster City, which is just on the other side of Half Moon Bay. Okay. And I surfed pretty much from San Francisco to Santa Cruz. That was my, my digs. And so we'd freeze and have fun, but it was a real adventure surfing back then. It wasn't uh, looking up how the waves are going to be. You just kind of went down there and you used your senses mm -hmm. and away you went. So it was a wonderful thing. Uh, I came down here to go to Long Beach State. Uh, upon arriving in Southern California, I was so happy with just the whole lifestyle the southern california lifestyle it wasn't as cold and rough and tumble as as northern california was right what'd you study by the way uh, i initially started out in marine biology and okay. then i ended up getting a degree in plastics of all things hmm. and so i was supposed to go to work for like northrop hughes or you know mcdonald douglas or something but uh during my time in school uh, i i heard my first job was with a company called miller's outpost which is a clothing retailer i remember him and so it's like, oh, wow, I can get paid for doing something this simple. It's kind of interesting. But it really wasn't my bag. And then I had an opportunity uh, with Huntington Surf and Sport in the early days. And so quite uh, fortunately, I really, really liked what 
was going on there and I really really began to understand the difference of what was going on there compared to the other surf shops that did not um, put an educated retail spin on things. Aaron was an innovator and still is um, and uh, he really pioneered how to do retail right and so his partnerships with companies like O'Neill and Billabong and the like were uh, forged very deeply back in the day and uh, so he did well and and um, you know I learned a lot and I think the proof of the pudding is most everybody that worked there uh, when I was there in the 80s still is in the surf industry today and so that was kind of a good spawning ground um, can you tell me what you mean by developing deep relationships with those brands how does that work as a retailer well one of the things that he did is he was he was bolder than than a lot of them he would buy more and uh, you know on the technical side he would probably exercise terms and so forth that allowed him to buy more but he sold more and so he was developing at that time for those guys well how do I deal with accounts that are larger and uh, Aaron was a growing account and so forging the backs back end of how to run a business was equally important on the retail side as was on the wholesale side hmm. and so um, it was it was a good synergistic relationship I think a growing one and so with whether it be HSNS or Jacks or all those stuff that were upper tier at that time uh, companies that were buying most of the product on the West Coast it was pretty cool hmm. um, and perfect time he got in kind of right at the perfect time amazing too. timing yeah amazing timing and and you know, for a lot of the stuff that we run into in, in our business is timing. Yeah. It's the right people at the right place at the right time with the right products and just it's just the synergy that is kind of magical and yeah. You know, it couldn't repeat itself in the same way today. No. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInJobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So um, what was your transition then from HSS to Harbor? 
kind of an interesting one. Um, the short end of the equation is Rich and I always had a tremendous relationship just from the, the board building side and the general general side. I just really enjoyed the man, still do. And uh, he would ask me every once in a while, hey, Robert, how, how did things go over at HSNS today? And, and because I wasn't working here at that time, I was working there, but I was writing the harbor boards. And I'd tell him some astronomical story and he'd go, holy moly, I've been in business since 1959. I've never done numbers like that on a day like that. What What's going on over there? And I said, well, you know, there ends this this emerging soft goods side that is really driving what's going on in the market today, in, in the surfing market today. And the margins on soft goods are so much better than possibly be on a manufactured surfboard product here in the United States. And so, you know, he, he's a pretty smart guy. I mean, he kind of looked at that and said, well, gosh, you know, that's that's kind of good. But anyway, over a little bit of time, he basically said, hey, Robert, can you do that for me? Can you help me out over here? Can Because, you know, we're, we're only primarily making boards, selling a few T-shirts and a couple of wetsuits and some accessories. But really, can do you think we can make an improvement? And the uh, long and the short of it was, I said, absolutely, you could certainly improve things. And, and uh, you know, so I came in to help him. I did other things in between coming in and, and talking to, to Rich. I worked at Peak Wetsuits for a while and, and did a few other things. But long and the short of it was, is that we were able to take his location here and improve it and bring it more into the standard of what needed to happen in order to survive throughout the 80s. So what did it look like when you got involved? Um, what were the profit centers of the business? And then secondly, what was the value proposition for you? Okay, so um, I'll try to answer your question as eloquently as I can. When I first got involved, I was actually quite a bit scared. And the reason why is that this place was one of the most awesome fraternity slash clubhouses you could possibly imagine. It had soul that was so deep, people would write on the walls. I mean. You know, there are shenanigans going on here that are legendary, and, and it was just a heck of a lot of fun, all to the detriment of doing a good job in business. Rich was so busy building all the boards in the back and doing all these things. The stuff that was going on up front probably wouldn't fly in any business today. And Rich's mom, Alice, who was absolutely instrumental in this whole equation, she couldn't keep up with what was going on up front. She was she was a little getting a little older, and she just didn't understand it. And so with the greatest of respect to her, she was like, what do I do kind of thing. So um, if you can rephrase the question one more time for me. What did the business look like when you got involved and you kind of covered that right now? And yeah. what was the value proposition for you? Because that sounds like a lot of risk. It was a lot of risk. And when I was brought on as a manager and he essentially said, hey, Robert, rebuild this place, it was no money out of my pocket at all. I just came into it as a hired gun and did my very best to bring it up to fruition. And in doing so, I might have uh, rubbed a couple of the old guard wrong because no, you can't be in here with a beer, I'm sorry. No, you can't write on the walls anymore, I'm sorry. No, you can't just reach in there and grab a free bar of wax or whatever the hell you want, I'm sorry. You know, well, who are you, Robert? You didn't grow up in this town. What's your story? How do you how do you come across like that to me? I've been here forever, kind of thing. And but you know, truth be told, these were the guys that were crashing the the car. These were the guys that were putting holes in the ship. And so I kind of knew that, but it was hard because I wanted to be accepted really bad. Of course. 
and I wanted to be a part of it. But in order to fulfill my obligation, I had to to uh, make some changes around here. So that was kind of hard. Um, was it your obligation? I mean, did Rich say profit matters most and that's why you're coming in? Well, he didn't jump up and say profit matters most. He said, can you fix it? Can okay. you help me? And so I did. And the long and the short of it was, over time, it began to run pretty well. And everybody kind of understood the new format. And as they looked around at the rest of what was going on in surf culture, love it or leave it, some of these older 60s and 70s guys kind of, you know, stood back a little bit. And a lot of new uh, fresh faces came in. And they were the, bre the fresh breath of the brand, the Charlie Wickbars, the Timmy Stamps, the Robert Colby's, the, you know, all these guys that were Seal Beach, you know, tried and true, but now in the shortboard format and really moving along in that whole 80s story really well. So the acceptability became there. But once I got it running and, and going good with, uh, obviously, with Rich's blessing, um, I had another opportunity and I left Harbor Surfboards. And I left under good, super good terms because Rich and I were at a point where he really couldn't afford to pay me more. I knew it. I know exactly what the, the numbers sure. were. And I'm like, bro, it's totally cool. I just got to spread my wings. I'm a college graduate. You know, I have aspirations and like most everybody else, and I've just got to give it a go. So I went on to, believe it or not, the bicycling industry for a while. And really what happened very shortly after that is Rich and I got back together again. He came back and he goes, Robert, you got to come back. I go, what's going on? He goes, no, you don't understand. I hate retail. All I ever wanted to do was build surfboards, build good surfboards. That's all I ever wanted to do. You've got to come back. I, I absolutely cannot take retail. I don't like doing the paperwork in the back. I don't like managing the people. I don't like doing the promotions. I do not like retail. You've got to come back. And I Rich, I, I don't have any means to come back. And so the you know, after some conversation and talk over months of time, he goes, I have a way. If you want to try it and you want to explore it, I have a way. I go, okay. And keep in mind at this time, I really didn't have a dime to my name in terms of I was making it, but I mean, I wasn't saving a whole lot. I didn't have any equity in anything. So Rich had this really uh, wonderful and kind proposition where he said, I'll carry the paper for you. Here's the numbers. Take a look at it, see what you think, bounce it off your parents, bounce it off whoever you think. But here's the numbers. I'll carry the paper. What do you say? For you to take over ownership? For me to take over ownership. And he would be the bank. And so I had um, I had this golden opportunity. And it didn't take me too long to think of, when's this ever going to happen again? What's the chances? You know. And if I fail, at least I would have given it my very best shot. Yeah. So um, I think in March 93... Uh, I signed in, and uh, and I became the the guy. Amazing. Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting thing because it was a, a, a scary time for me in all kinds of different ways. Just uh, you know, I was very grateful to have this opportunity, and I think it was like on my first day. It was a rainy day in March or something, and I even think it was, if I get my story correctly, the place got broken into. <laughs> like my first day. Rich called me in the middle of the night and said, hey, you got to get down here. And they didn't steal much, but it's like they threw a rock through the window or whatever it was. And so my first day where I was all signed in, it was 100% my responsibility at that time. The I's were dotted, T's were crossed. And I was just sitting there kind of by myself with the rain, cleaning up the glass. I think I sold one surfer magazine and 
a couple bars of wax that day. So Ouch. I was I was absolutely um, beside myself. <laughs> yeah, you didn't even earn enough to pay for the window. <laughs> right, right. So anyway, everything seemed to get better from there. And, okay. and it was just, you know, everybody has to go through hurdles and you just, just keep marching on. And that's essentially what we did and kind of where we are today. It's amazing. Um, backtracking a little bit so much. There's this ongoing theme in surfing where, you know, the core surfers mm-hmm. um, want to keep it core. Mm-hmm. And there's the threat as things grow of whitewashing mm-hmm. some of that kind of core salty mm-hmm. col- culture. We mm-hmm. worry about the WSL doing it. Mm-hmm. We worry about brands it's doing it. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. But that was your role. You came in and there was all this salt in the shop, as you said, yeah. to a detriment right. to the business. But is there any regret of, I mean, so much of the character of a brand comes from that salt you know i couldn't agree more and i think that i really need to tell you that i have left a fair degree of salt in there okay okay so it's not as salty but let's just say we we are uh we are are i feel as honest as we can be in the times that we live in of being a surfer's surf shop yeah with all the history that goes with it. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And are business-minded. I have to be. I mean, I have a family now, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, uh, Rich's family also relies on me doing a good job with their brand. Yeah. You know, so. I wish I could remember the exact date, but, um, well, it would have been since you were here, maybe 1996-ish. Mm-hmm. The very first surf film I ever bought was here. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I had rented um, The Endless Summer 2, obviously, you know, and yeah. like, oh, I'm going to go buy this. I need to own this. Right. So I came here to get that. And then I saw all the collection mm-hmm. under the glass and I was like, you know, I've already seen The Endless Summer 2. What I, I really should just get something new. Yeah. And it was an O'Neill fi- film made by Tony Roberts called Jacked. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> it was yeah. all the Santa Cruz guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Old stomping grounds. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that was the very first surf video purchase. Yeah. VHS. Well, well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, we used to do a lot of that, as you might imagine, and then we did a, a grip of DVDs, and now we can't do pretty much any of it, thanks to YouTube and you know all these other things. People have access to whatever they need. Yeah, totally. So it's it's a rarity, if any, if I ever sell CDs anymore. Yeah. I have a good collection of uh, ones that we play at the store, and, and we have some old VHSs, but not an operating VHS player. Right. So, you know, it was a unique time. And, and to your point, people got their surf uh, vibe, surf mojo, surf identity from a surf shop, and losses of VHS, DVDs, and various other things that are now spread elsewhere throughout the world and with a, not within the walls of brick and mortar. That's to the detriment a little bit of, you know, the story. I know. I, I try to assess that. Is it detrimental or is it just different? You know, like it, 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 history will write it the way that it is. But right. it, the the less less draw there is to a surf shop for whatever reasons, you know, the the less there is. What was so when you started mm-hmm. uh, in the ninety three or whatever? Mm-hmm. What were the profit centers of the business at that point and where are they now um interestingly enough back then 
if, uh, if you, even if you, you go a little further into the late 80s, early 90s, if you didn't have the major brands, the Quicksilvers, the O'Neills, the Billabongs, you really weren't considered a surf shop at that time. So as far as a profit center, that was like, okay, your stamp of approval if you got all the heavy hitters. And at that time, those brands protected their territories. Did that? They basically said, hey, you know, we can't open you because we've got this guy over here and he's he's been paying our bills and I'm not going to upset the apple cart, which is so different than how things are today. Right. So those were huge profit centers. Um, yeah, at that time, we were doing a fair amount of wetsuits, too. Um, at that time, wetsuit innovation was happening almost on a yearly, if not bi-yearly basis. Suits were just getting better and better and better, and, totally. and uh, there's a lot of interest in them. And because there was a, a limited distribution, people would come to us. Uh, we were the the cent- we were the location in in uh, North Orange County. You know, we were the spot uh, before you head into PV and all that stuff. We were the last last spot. Right. So we had the ability to use products like that and. Uh, you know, at that time, the Harbor label was doing okay, but I would probably say we are, you know, we're less than 20%, 25%, maybe 30%, just, you know, Harbor Triangle soft goods. Wow. Today, that's inverted. Wow. Inverted. And so if we didn't have that, we'd be in big trouble because of the incredible distribution. I will go as far as saying over distribution of the other brands. And, you know, if I was on their board of directors, I probably would have done it the same way, but I'm sure. just speaking from the perspective of where we are in, in small retail surf. So, um, yeah, thank God for Harbor Surfboard's private label. So the private label is the, the draw for consumers. It is. And I think, and I think that. that's not, I think that's not only true of surf accounts, but I think really any business that's going to be in a retail environment pretty much has to tell their own story. Yeah. You know, whether it's in food, whether it's in, clothing whatever it is right you know so um how important are surfboards to your business well surfboards are very very important because i hate to use the term lost leader but at the end of the day we're harbor surfboards we build surfboards we build them here on site that's totally rare i mean we've got foam dust right out my door here and i clean it up and or have the boys clean it up every single day and it's awesome i don't think that most (laughs) cities would allow it like well, you've been grandfathered in obviously yeah curiously enough we're not allowed to laminate boards here anymore so we have to farm that out but at the end of the day we can still shape boards here and so we don't have 55 gallon drums of resin and stone and all the other stuff that we used to have in this building all day long so yes by good fortune we're still able to shape boards here show people their boards as they're being produced um, tell a story that is so different than most what we consider a surf shop today. Um, so I'm very, very happy and proud of that. I, I can remember years ago, many, many years ago, uh, this shaping team really wasn't keen on people watching them build a board. They were worried. They were worried that somebody would learn something from them and then put them out of business. And that was a legitimate worry, but I foresaw no we need this tactile experience. We need to invite people to see what it is that we've done since 1959. So it took a lot of years, but yeah, now it's like, absolutely, come and watch your board being shaped for sure. In fact, come and watch this other guy's board being shaped because that tactile experience today is not in most 
uh, surf shops. Right. And it is our ace in the hole. So now using our history to our advantage, not just looking at well, what's trending today. That's important, but what's trending perpetually is the Harbor Surfboards brand, and that's us. Um, do you sell Harbor Surfboards elsewhere? Do you have accounts? We do. Uh, we do have accounts elsewhere. It's not a big deal. There's uh, good accounts, are, are probably the best accounts in Japan, and they'll buy in bulk, which is kind of nice, um, and it really doesn't uh, affect us, if you will. Um, most people will take a drive from San Diego or wherever to come to Harbor Surfports. It's it's a it's worth coming to, in most people's opinion, certainly mine, um, because of the ambiance, the experience that you can get here. Yeah. It's different than any place else. So most people wouldn't mind going to see the shop and pick up a board, pick up a board, or maybe even just come in and shoot the ball and yeah. learn learn a thing or two. Yeah, you know. Um, are all the boards shaped on site? All the or, boards are shaped on site. And who's shaping now? We have Steve Farwell and Kurt Augsburger. They've been with us forever. Uh, Tim Stamps is still around. He does uh, some consulting and some shaping on certain designs of us. Um, fortunately, uh, a lot of the designs are in the Shape 3D program right now, so there's no lost designs or lost templates in terms of, can you still build that? Of course we can. Right. And we have a, um, a deep uh, well that we can pull from. And where are the boards being laminated? Waterman's Guild in Santa Ana. Awesome. Yeah, so we've, we've had a good relationship with those guys over the years, and a lot of other uh, prominent brands use them. And part of the deal with a harbor board is the aesthetic. We're pretty confident that the board's going to ride well, should, should it be fitted appropriately to the customer. But how the boards look, this is really, really important. So the finish work here is uh, very very high because a lot of the boards are tinted and when the boards are tinted any scratch or imperfection in foam will show up as a darker spot or hue so we deliver the boards to them at what we feel in very pristine condition and their laminations are very good and consequently have a board that's aesthetically pleasing as well as rides well soup the highest quality laminations highest strongest we can think of, yeah yeah, uh, yeah best aesthetic yeah. for sure that's awesome yeah um do you carry any other surfboard brands we do not carry any surf other surfboard brands. What's the poly what's the theory or decision behind that? Well, I've always felt that we are Harbor Surfboards and we should be able to cover everything under our own label. And I didn't want to compete with somebody else out there by carrying something else. So um, it'd be impossible for me to carry another brand and tell the Harbor story as eloquently. What about soft tops okay i feel like i've seen a i didn't really look but i feel like i passed a soft top. you're correct you're correct okay. soft tops are not a threat for us relative to uh a hardboard brand okay so we'll carry um soft boards uh we feel that's a great uh entry into the hardboard market um, when i grew up surfing and perhaps when you did too there were no soft boards so when you took a digger and you hit your board you really felt it um so all the surf schools used soft surfboards for the most part and consequently it's a great bridge we sell used boards and and um you know that's also a good bridge but a soft board really allows somebody to come in and feel that they're safer going surfing and they are and so i like them is it mainly just beginners buying them i mean well, well that has changed yeah. i mean it's so fun because that has changed and and uh yeah i mean 
and my, the brands are making more high performance versions. They are, and, yeah. and I actually think if I was to you know sort of crystal ball it, I think there's a hybrid board out there that might be a wave pool specific soft hard board that uh, might be kind of a the next bridge. But um, yes, we are generally selling though to an entry level audience. Got it. Um, so. The frothing grom that wants some, you know, eyeballed bottom soft surfboard of whatever brand it is. Hey, he comes along every once in a while. But the vast majority that we sell are to those folks that have just finished their surf lesson. They may not be surfing very much once a month, every other once in a while, or a family or something like that. They don't want to get their kids hurt. Totally great. Hmm. Start them there. So has the uh, popularity of soft tops jeopardized hardboard sales at all? Um, it's an interesting thing. I, I I think that if I was to speak outside of Harbor Surfboards, sure, it's taken a percentage of it. I mean, uh, I don't know if this is absolutely true, but the number one selling uh, board uh, brand, I believe, is Wavestorm out of Costco in terms of units. So, of course, it's had to take uh, some of it out of it. But for us here at Harbor Surfboards, because we are what I would consider a, a premium board brand, if you will. I don't know if that's really even a term. People come to us when they are average to better than average, when they really want to get something really special. Um, you know, you, you don't have to buy a Mercedes-Benz. It's not going to get you anywhere any different than a Toyota. But it's kind of like, okay, I've got my real job. I'm kind of doing I'm going to get myself something that's a step up from what I may have had before. Yeah. So I think Harbor Surfboards and brands like us have always been that, been there for people yeah. in that regard. Um, as, the, as you know, currently, there are limitations on soft boards in terms of their performance. And if you're just, you know, dicking around with your friends on closeout days, hey, man, there's nothing better. Great fun. Yeah. But when you really try to get the boards to perform in a good wave and so forth, they still don't have quite the abilities of the other boards. And I mean, not even close. Right. So, you know, if it's all fun and games and you're tackling your friends out in the surf, I get it. I love doing it myself. I yeah. think it's great. But when you want to go surfing, surfing, I think a well-shaped board from any reputable board builder is the ticket. Yeah, I'm, I'm not tracking the numbers, but... I don't think that the soft top popularity has jeopardized board sales. Like, I, I almost feel like it just makes surfing more fun. It, the people are just spending more time at the beach, yep. not not the same amount of time, and mm -hmm. then choosing one board over the other. It just intensifies and amplifies the fun and the more time that you yep. get together with your friends. Yeah, you know? I, I would I would agree because when you go out on a soft surfboard, you can't take yourself too seriously. Right. And I think that's the whole thing. Sometimes if you, you roll out and your brand new board of whatever it is, you're expected to surf like the best guy who rides that label. Yeah. And and you roll out on your soft board and you are just giggling. I mean, it, it's hilarious. And then it amps me up to actually go shred. You yeah. Know? Like yeah. I kind of like, all right, well, tomorrow the waves are going to be good, so I'm going to bring right. Well, right. whatever. Yeah. Um, Agreed. My daughter taught me that, actually. What's just that? go out and have fun, Dad. Don't worry about anything else. Just go have fun. And so it's weird we're out there tackling that. each other on soft boards. Or what have you, and it's just like, oh yeah, this is a kick in the shorts. But isn't it fun how you forget to have fun? Yeah. And you just start taking yourself so seriously. Yeah. And and I and that's point well said. It's weird. Leave it to child's kind of yeah. perspective to reset that's your it. cynicism. Yep. You know. <laughs> um. Well, speaking of kids, you and I talked just before we went on the air about um. When we were young, you had to go through a surf shop yes. in order to be a surfer. Yes. Even things like 
board shorts weren't available through department stores or anywhere else. Right. Certainly wetsuits weren't. Right. Um, kids don't have to do that nowadays. If you're growing up as a surfer around here, you can buy everything online. And there's some brands that are dedicated wholly to online. Yes. You can't even get through retail. Exactly how does, right. How does that change surf culture? Does it threaten the youth's surf culture? How, how will their your kids' experience be different if they don't have to go through retail? Well, I, I think... I think they'll be missing out. I mean, we're we're in a very politically correct world that we live in today, and and part of the ambiance of a surf culture uh, and a surf shop, if you will, was being accepted into a place. Um, so all the early surf shops uh, were kind of like little hubs, if you will, of surf culture. Um, that, of course, had, had changed, has changed. And I do believe there are people that choose to shop at their favorite surf shop. And so there still is some attachment to it, but the devices, the internet or what have you has now developed its own very specific um, convenience, if not price structure war. And the direct consumer avenue, of course, changes everything. you can't go back in time. So yes, of course, I'm a little older and I pine for days that were simpler and easier and less crowded and what have you. But this is what they're faced with. So to say that they're missing out, I'd say they are missing out on certain avenues of surf culture. Um, One thing that I would say is that they don't get a tactile experience when you're pressing your computer keys to buy something. So if they did have the opportunity to come in here and hear hear the boards being produced or talk to people producing them. There's something very special about that. And maybe, just maybe, that's enough for them to consider buying something from us or people like us. That's the hope for us in the future is that tactile, very special experience as it goes away elsewhere, hopefully retains itself here and makes it a point of difference for us to come. But we still can't beat certain things in in pricing. If somebody's going to be a direct-to-consumer brand, um, a lot of the times their big shtick is obviously price. And, you know, I can't fault them for that. If I didn't have this, I might be looking at that avenue to try to, you know, forge my way within a, in the business. That's just where we are these days. I see things optimistically and mm-hmm. that um, it feels like a threat at certain times. But realistically, some things like that mm-hmm. can help you adjust your business model to be leaner and run more efficiently Mm -hmm. and then you know it's not just them or you you Mm -hmm. can kind of adapt to some of the things that they've introduced or pioneered Mm -hmm. into your business and run a better business five or ten years from now yeah it's definitely had to we've definitely had to lean out we've definitely had to be smarter Uh, and i think that's what we'll what we'll be doing going forward but it is quite a challenge and not just in in our business but retail as a whole Um, We are obviously embedded in our business, and so we notice it, but it's really a challenge. But like any good restaurant, you go back if you love it. And so if I sort of follow that philosophy of, well, what's it take to to make a really nice restaurant? There you have it. That's kind of, you know, my my thought. Have you invested at all in e-com? A little bit. We sell our own products in there. Um, I did try to sell other products uh, with our e-com site, the, the downside what to it was is we didn't have the search engine optimization, the amount of time that you 
have into it and then when the companies themselves were selling their own products online it's super super hard to compete also I don't have the skill set self-admitted that uh, would really allow me to take that and really move on it there may be a few people around that do it but I would say it's only a handful I don't think there's every surf shop on the coast is killing it in their e-com but I think they might be doing well with their own private label within it and I think that's great so the more of the story our story that I can tell the better off I am yeah and and so I'm always looking to tell um, our story the best with the best products and uh, make those available exclusively through us if possible and uh, that's great uh, the value of the brand is obviously the legacy or the value of the retail store is that experiential mm -hmm. thing being mm -hmm. able to come in here and the boards are being built so you would have to replicate that somehow on the website and through the e-com mm -hmm. for it to really provide value yeah on, uh, and it's hard to do it's very hard to do and and um, we have a couple of cool little short video clips of, of boards being shaped and laminating and that sort of thing and I, I just uh, you know, I mean, if we could hear it and smell it, that would be even better. But yeah. you know, I mean, that that technology isn't there yet. But uh, it'll get there. Yeah, you know, <laughs> sounds of planers frying foam, and right. you know, the sound of a, a squeegee running across wet fiberglass. I mean, those are things that that most people don't even understand or can experience. Yeah. What do you view as a threat to your business in 2019? Uh, mostly the things that you and I had just spoken about. The direct to consumer thing is is a pretty big deal. Um, as I mentioned to you before, you know, years gone by where maybe 25, 30% Harbor Surfboard stuff and, you know, 70 or so percent somebody else's and I told you it was inverted. Well, those other products, as they get so easy to acquire outside of the surf shop, that's the huge threat. And then now the whole different business model, the direct to consumer, that's a pretty big one. Because, you know, when, when I talk to certain people who don't realize what I do and I'm just, you know, talking to somebody in the lineup and, and I go, oh, man, that's a that's a pretty cool wetsuit. He goes, yeah, man, I, I got this thing online. I go, how's it fit? Really, really good. I mean, it's just as good as my company, whatever, that I had just had a couple of years ago. I go, wow, what made you decide to get it? He goes, oh, dude, I saved 75 bucks on this thing. What happened if it didn't fit? That's no problem. They got to they just send it right back, and you know, it's it was easy. It was easy. Do you think you'll buy another one? Heck yeah! Oh wow, that that's cool. Does it have any cool features? Well, check this out. Yeah, it's a front zip, and it's got this on it, and you know, it's got taping, and it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's rad. You know, so I kind of paddle away, going, okay, scratching my head, going, <laughs> well, how do I deal with that? <laughs> yeah, what I do like about those examples is. Let's get real. There's been a lot of uh, waste the way that retail has been run for the mm -hmm. last 20 and 30 years. Agreed. There's a lot of redundancies. Mm -hmm. There's all of this kind of, we've been allowed to just get sloppy. Mm -hmm. And so those businesses have figured out, those are experts mm -hmm. with both the wetsuit example and the Birdwells guys. Mm -hmm. Like, they're experts in their field. Mm -hmm. They have a tremendous track record. And then they just looked at this one thing and go, hey, we can do this better, leaner, tighter, mm -hmm. with less waste, which right. is environmentally better. All, you know, all of the above. Yeah. And then they just targeted this one specific thing and did it. And so you are an expert as well at what you do. And you can assess those things and go, good for those guys. That's not my business. I need to focus on what we do. Yeah. And what we do is surfboards, the private label thing, 
and nobody can touch us with that. You know? Yeah, well, that, that's that's my goal. I mean, yeah. I, I respect what those guys do, and, and like I said, if I wasn't doing this and I had expertise in those fields, I probably would have done the same thing. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, I'm curious about your employees. Mm-hmm. How has that changed over the years? It's a great, great question. Thanks. Uh, I choose my employees very, very carefully these days. We have, we have much to lose and much to gain by not having the correct people on board. Totally. And so I've been very, very fortunate in that I think over the last 20 plus years, I've hired exclusively college students. I try to get them in their freshman year and have them roll with me for at least four years. And it's worked out so far because with respect to all those that are out there, these guys have a uh, desire to better themselves and are obviously uh, you know, doing so, getting their education. And the college uh, format over the, the time where they have a huge amount of time off in the summer, that's great for us because we're busy up then. Then their schedules become a little less available during the slower seasons. That's great for us. works for them. And they don't need an ultra-high-paying job at that time because they're in school and they may be uh, uh, you know, funded also by their parents a little bit. So they just need a little responsibility, a little job. And they're still frothing groms because they want to surf 24-7 still mm-hmm. and, and enjoy the water. And, and uh, they're just a great, great bunch of guys. I've, I cannot tell you how fortunate I've been uh, with the guys that I've had over the years. It's just it's amazing. And some of them uh, now have families and we're still all good friends and they're all fond of their professional careers. And, and it's it's just a hoot when they all come back in and, and um, you know, reminisce about times gone by. But most every single one still serves and it's great only a few have moved away from the coast Hmm. has there been any change with kids of the 90s or the 2000s versus millennials now in terms of work ethic or things that you need to manage differently um yeah a little bit i i would say work work ethic i'm fortunate when when we uh do hire people that i pretty good judge of character um if in fact it doesn't work out, we make sure it doesn't work out in a relatively quick amount of time. Good. So, I think work ethic um, is a lot. If I may be so bold, is a lot taught at home uh, during their formative years, their early years, their early teens. Um, they'll either get that from their, you know, they will get it from their parents, and it'll kind of be that sort of thing. And you know, they didn't make it to. They made it to college because they did some certain things right. So that was doing it right in school, uh, making the grades, and that comes along with work ethic. Um, this Spicoli style guy is still out there, but he's not my guy. Right. Um, and uh, you know, all these kids these days seem to want to live a bohemian lifestyle and all these kinds of things. Uh, they see a lot of the surf videos that are being produced today, and they just seem like guys traveling around the world, having fun, drinking beer, and not in the contest scene and just enjoying life. It's great, and you can do little trips like that, but at the end of the day, you can't make a living at that. And I think my guys truly do realize that. There's nobody that wants to just sleep in their van full time, but there are guys that like to go on road trips mm-hmm. and sleep in their van part time. Mm-hmm. That's all right. Get enough photos, though, to post throughout the year oh, and make yeah. it look like you do. 
Exactly, exactly. Tell the story, build out the back of their van, you know, get the two by fours and the wood and all that stuff and just make this little cubby. Exactly. What's your ambition for growth for Harbor Surfboards? Um, do you ever envision multiple locations? Is e-com the focus for growth or are you happy with the same equation? The equation is a good equation. I'd be foolish to say that I shouldn't try to grow. So growing our, our brand, our private label brand, getting more into um, certain types of cut and sew to develop products that are a little bit more technical with the Harbor label, um, building the e-commerce to reach its potential would be the two areas that I think we would like to be. As far as us uh, having a different location, I don't see myself developing a harbor in a different location. Uh, harbor surfboards is kind of like, I don't know, the Sistine Chapel or something. You just can't replicate it, move it. It is where it is. Yeah. Um, if there was ever something of a move, it would be it would be a different look. It would be a different deal. And you know, um, there are things that I'm optimistic about. Um, there are things that I'm, I'm a little bit, I wouldn't say pessimistic, but a little down on. And I think anybody jumping into the retail environment today better have their A game on because it's an incredibly difficult place to be. And, and I can't imagine who would want to jump into an independent surf shop at this particular time company stores I kind of understand they can be fed by the mothership there can be certain things that assist them and allowing them to survive if not thrive um, obviously their margins are fantastic if they build their own product and have their own company store so those are things that allow surf retail to perhaps re um, tasks make an inroad in a location but an independent that's really really hard mm. because you can't develop your own private label from the get-go and make it stick it takes years to get that to go so you'd be relying on somebody else's product in order for you to do it and not making the margin because all this other product is available everywhere if not directly from the manufacturer themselves upon which they take the larger lion's share of the profit on that yeah so very difficult yeah who do you look for who do you look to for cues on innovation i mean do you look to surf retail for how other people are doing it I, I was just thinking, um, I was listening to something yesterday about this company called Stitch Fix, mm -hmm. which is a retailer, but mm -hmm. they're focused on online, direct to consumer. Mm -hmm. And their model is like they send you a box of clothes. You mm -hmm. keep, it's not a subscription, but like you keep what you want. They, and return what you don't or return it all. And then they just charge you appropriately, but they also collect all the data and develop a profile for you mm -hmm. so that they can better they could send you kind of a more accurate, um, mm -hmm. you know, style. Yeah. So the next time around that box is something more that you want. I exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's an interesting model, but I mean, it is retail. It's clothing retail mm -hmm. just done kind of a different way. So yeah. there's a lot, like as you grow your business, you know, there's a lot of people you could be taking cues from. I'm just curious. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a very bold and innovative way. And generally that's going to, uh, cater well to that age demographic whatever that is um, for us believe it or not uh, 
call me old school or what have you, but I, I take a look at, mentioned it to you once before, restaurants. And I take a look at their retention and how they do it and the management style and that sort of thing. And it's about an experience as much as it's about the food. Completely. And so for me, for what I have, that works really, really well without having to go completely outside the envelope of what we're commonly doing. So, um, you know, I try to think to myself, as you mentioned that, what surfers do I know at what ages that was like something like that? And off the top of my head, I couldn't think of one of my friends that would buy into that. Now, granted, my friends are 40 on up. So there might be that whole group of 20 to 40 that might go, now, wait a minute. But every time that I take them away from the shop by offering them a, a product or a service that they can get without coming to visit, I feel that I'm not doing a really good job of perpetuating what it is that I have. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm careful uh, with that. Gotcha. You know? The restaurant analogy is a interesting one yeah that's good to me I that's like that's kind of the deal yeah um kind of a closing question where does it go from here i mean what's your retirement plan look like <laughs> how much longer will you be here and then who takes oh, over the shop man. afterwards wow that that's a really really big question which i'm sure whatever answer i give you would uh, be modified in the years to come sure <laughs> but you know um if in a perfect world this thing would go another 60 years, okay? If in a perfect world, it would be, uh, which I already feel in Seal Beach, it is a cornerstone of our town. It has Seal Beach's Harbor Surfboards, Harbor Surfboards is Seal Beach, and, and that's kind of a wonderful thing. Um, so would I love to perpetuate it far past my ability to do it? Absolutely, I think it'd be amazing. Um, how to do it, that's the, the greatest question of all. Um, hopefully I'll have the ability to guide it that way. They, I obviously know that at some point I'm going to have to step off and hand it to somebody else. And I think one of the key things is to find somebody who who I've worked with for a period of time, not just somebody out of the blue. It probably will be one of my managers or something like that that has the ability to sort of do essentially what I did, but in a maybe even a better way, a better way in terms of time and then hopefully uh, do something like that for, for them. Because the gift Rich gave me of being able to uh, take this over, I had repeated once before as well. We had another company called Alternative Surf, and I did the same thing. I carried the paper for my manager, and it worked out. It was a wonderful thing. So whether that works out again, I couldn't tell you. Um, but I would like to think that like most folks, um, somewhere around the mid-60s or something, uh, would be a nice time to do more surfing and exploring and hanging out with the wife and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff like regular folks do, Yeah, I guess. But I'm not opposed to being here, you know, I like it. Um, but there is a certain relevancy that I, I'm, I'm very aware of that I personally am perhaps losing and that is there's no way a 70 year old guy is going to be able to sell a bar of wax to a kid and still get the same mojo as that 20 something year old super stoked salted surfer saying here here bro maybe i'll see you out in the lineup right oh my gosh 
and I'm very aware of that. So when I am on the floor, I'm very careful about you know who I engage with and so forth like that. Because if it's more relevant for my guys, I just happen to be walking through and I see these this young group of guys. I tell them, hey man, go chat those guys up for a little bit, make a relationship. You know, um, introduce, be sure you introduce yourself, make a relationship. Don't let them leave empty-handed. Give them a sticker and a, you know, whatever it takes. Learn their story. Why are they here? All that sorts of things. And my guys are super good at all of that. They all have business cards, and so they just go chat them up. And uh, then now they have a connection. Oh yeah, your name's Jack. Cool. Oh, yeah. Cool. Come on in. Ask for me next time. You know. And now they have a person that's on their level. If that person that comes in is a 45-something or 50-something, hey, I'm in, man. Because the inverse is also true. If you get my youngest guy talking to the oldest, saltiest guy, there's a discrepancy. So I do feel I'm still relevant somewhat (laughs) uh, in certain situations, but I also understand the relevancy of my younger guys. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. You can acquire a Harbor Surfboard, Harbor Clothing, or their 60th anniversary coffee table book at harborsurfboards.com. I have a link to it as well on surfsplendorpodcast.com, along with images of the shop throughout the years. I've also posted episode number 17 of Surf Splendor with Rich Harbor himself. That episode, as well as today's, is all made possible over the past six years through listener support. You can support this work through a donation button on our website. And you can see all of that Harbor Surfboards memorabilia alongside Hobie Surfboards, Laguna Surf and Sport, Gordon and Smith, Hanson Surfboards, and about 20 others at the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center's Temples of Stoke exhibit running through October 29th. I'll be back this Friday with another new episode of The Grit with Chaz Smith and then Tuesday for Spit with Scott Bass And then next Wednesday for an all-new episode of Surf Splendor. Until then, enjoy the Tahiti Pro, get back in the ocean, share some waves, and shred on.